This is your host, Daniel Storm, and you're listening to the RPG Radio Show. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome. To our returning listeners, welcome back to Sildoom. On our show, tabletop role-playing games and audiobook collide to create a unique and character-driven story. We use sound effects, ambiance, and music to bring our story to life. If you're new to or completely inexperienced with tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, don't worry. We edit out all the rules checking and mechanics that get in the way of the story so our show sounds more like an audiobook or audio drama with sections of improvisation. If you're new to the show, you can start here, though the first season will provide heaps of context. For our returning listeners and listeners looking to start with Season 2, Here's a brief recap of what happened last season on the RPG Radio Show. Turmoil in the Empire simmered just below the boil. The Empress, also called the High Beacon, ruled Sildum from the capital city of Caspain. Peace was tenuous at best, as various organizations vied for power and dominance. Some struggles took place in the light, others in the shadow. Part one of our book followed five heroes. The performer, Jacob a man running from his past, unable to shake the things hounding him. He found himself thrust into the uneasy and unofficial role of group leader. He wove his way into each of his companions' lives, comforting, cajoling, and lying when it suited his needs. Following the murder of his friend and mentor, Old Dale, Jacob sought ways to fill the hollowness growing inside him. Jaded by his past involvement with the Empire, he now seeks a way to bring the Empire low. The Drifter, Gavin, Death followed the young man wherever he went, but never seemed to touch him. After years of living on the run, he met Jacob. The two's partnership and friendship deepened, but their bond couldn't keep the shadow of Batoon at bay. After stealing a dagger to cover lost wages, he set off a string of violence that ended lives for friends and acquaintances old and new. He struggled to maintain a hold of his mind as he lost his purpose. Gavin began to slip further and further away from the light. The Zealot. Maze. The lone survivor of an extremist group of Hyxnos' disciples far from his frigid outpost, Maze finds himself in an unfamiliar world that is far different from what he was taught to expect. After rescuing the dwarven Nemda and her daughter Glina, and speaking with the blind inquisitor Lenriesh, Maze begins to regain his faith. Forced to venture to a place he was always taught to fear, he struggled to remain anchored to the light as his party descended further into darkness. The herdsman, Dimitri. A latecomer to the party, Dimitri was an experienced ranger in the wild, a forbidden plane of existence brimming with magic. A mysterious enemy, Sovocene, plagued his fractured memory. The smith, Sonata. Another latecomer to the party, Sonata was in the employ of Lord Brilliant Zilladim Kuldir of Bon Kuldir as his palace armorer. For days she had the same vision every time she fell asleep. She saw a young man in a crowd before a blinding flash turned all to ash before her. To her surprise, that young man turned out to be Gavin. Believing that the visions were important, Lord Zilladim encouraged Sonata to travel with the party into the wild to investigate the mystery of Sovocene. Our journey began on the road from Wildspring. After bandits attacked the town, Maze brought it onto himself to bring Hyxnos' justice to the criminals. Vastly outnumbered, The barbarian quickly fell, but not before the timely arrival of Jacob and Gavin. Together, the duo made short work of the remaining bandits and revived Maze in their camp. That night, as they sat around the fire, 
an otherworldly beast and a strange man burst into their camp. With the help of the mysterious stranger, Dimitri, our heroes were able to banish the creature to the wild. With the beast seemingly defeated, our party continued their journey towards the dwarven mountain city, Bonkuldir. Along the way, they encountered the dwarven woman Nemda and her young daughter Glina. Maze took a particular liking to the dwarves, swearing on his life to see them to safety. The rest of their journey was not without incident, though. In the shadow of the mountain that housed the dwarven city, Gavin's past deeds caught up with them. Members of the violent extremist group the Grey Dawn ambushed our party on the Beacon's Highway. The Grey Dawn held Gavin and Jacob's friend Old Dale at Swordpoint. They demanded that Gavin return the dagger he stole. After a tense exchange, the Grey Dawn attacked, murdering Old Dale. It was in the ensuing battle that a strange thing happened. The dagger, carried by Gavin, changed. In a fit of rage, Gavin took the lives of many of the ambushers, and in doing so, activated something within the dagger, causing it to elongate into a short sword. Leaving the carnage of the skirmish behind, our party, along with their new dwarven companions, continued their journey towards the dwarven city. Upon arriving in Bon Kuldir, Maze bid a sorrowful goodbye to the dwarves and made his way to the nearest temple of Hyksnos with Gavin in tow. Desperate for purpose, Maze, along with Gavin, offered to search for a missing urchin, Brennan. The boy was in possession of a writ for potions to cure the reaver's cough, a terrible illness ravishing the poorest population of Bon Kuldir, before he went missing. As they searched for the boy, Gavin began to open Maze's eyes to the reality of life outside of his outpost. Unfortunately, their search was successful, but they were too late to save the boy. Desperate to meet vengeance out to Brennan's killers, Gavin and Maze tracked down the responsible parties and brought the trio to Hyksnos' justice before retrieving and delivering the antidote. Meanwhile, Jacob and Dimitri paid a visit to the ghastly eel and Jacob's old friend Kane Mistower. After indulging in a bit too much ice wine and drifting off to sleep, Dimitri's consciousness was transported to the wild where the vessel reshaped him to fight in the coming war. Dimitri returned to the material plane just in time to hear Jacob recount the tale of the rain on the radiant van to a packed crowd at the ghastly eel. As Jacob finished, Empire soldiers rushed in to take both Dimitri and Jacob into custody. Before Gavin and Maze could reunite with their friends, they too were abruptly taken into custody by the blind inquisitor Lenriesh. Our adventurers were then separated and interrogated about their respective roles in the altercation involving the Grey Dawn on the Beacon's Highway. As the interrogations escalated towards violence, our heroes were rescued by the Lord Brilliant Zilladim Kuldir. Powerless to protest against the higher-ranking official, the blind Inquisitor Lenriesh relinquished the prisoners. Zilladim whisked them away to his palace in the highest ring of the tiered city. Once rested, Lord Brilliant Zilladim convened a dinner for all of our heroes, the half-orc Sonata Stillbrook, as well as the dwarves Nemda and Glina, to discuss the reasons he chose to retrieve them from the clutches of the blind inquisitor Lenriesh. As Zilladim explained his plan, our group of adventurers eventually agreed to the undertaking. Once outfitted for the mission, Jacob, Gavin, Maze, Dimitri, and Sonata used one of Dimitri's portals to travel between planes of existence and journey into the Forbidden Wild. In separate meetings with the Lord Brilliant, Gavin, Sonata, and Dimitri all agreed to further Zilladim's plans. Dimitri agreed to keep his portal to the wild open so that the troublesome Lenriesh could be thrown through. The adventure in part one culminated with Maze being the first to plunge into the portal and through to the wild. And now we continue book one of the RPG radio show with part two, The Wild. 
The following prologue was pre-written and narrated. Prologue. Maze. One year ago. Maze and the Rumblehide sons worked in only breeches and tunics, despite the freezing autumn air. Sweat beaded on Maze's brow as he hoisted the last sack of grain into the loft and the waiting hands of Arnie, who was stacking them against the far wall. Maze and the Rumblehides had just spent the last few hours helping the heavily bundled soldiers unload their wagons, storing sacks of grain, barrels of apples packed in sawdust, crates of salt, a few precious jars of southern honey, and other sundries in the loft of the outpost central barn. The heat from the gunman's bison would keep everything from freezing in the coming winter. The soldiers had arrived just after daybreak, many of them sporting small wounds, others more serious injuries. Life at the outpost had prepared its inhabitants for hard work, and as word of the troops' condition spread, the residents of Outpost 927 came together to aid the beleaguered soldiers. Ophelia, Maze's wife, took charge of seeing to the wounded as Maze roped in the Rumblehide sons to heave the supplies into the loft of the barn. The troops' captain, his rank signified by the knotted golden cord draping down his left shoulder, spoke of a bandit attack on the rough road north from Icemount. Bitterness crept into his tone as he explained how fortunate the outpost was to be getting any supplies this season. Indeed, Maze could see something he thought was resentment in the captain's eyes, even as the outposters bandaged and fed the haggard soldiers. Brother Tobiah often explained that not all those in the Empire would understand why the five families had taken the beacon's coin and settled farther north than anyone else in all of Sildum. He always said that the five families had chosen to flee the corruption, faithlessness, and impiety of Icemount. Maze was too young when his father had taken them north to remember any of that, though. For Maze, the wild, untamed beauty of rolling forested hills set against the pale pink quartz of the screaming peaks sang of Hyksnos' glory. In the summer, the lady's light would shine nearly all day and night. Wildflowers would blanket the ground in vivid displays of color, the very land would come alive with the light of the Radiant One. The winters were the exact opposite. Hyksnos' light would only shine for a few precious hours each day. Brother Tobiah explained that without darkness, one could never truly appreciate the light. The harshness of the winters here were a stark reminder of how all life withered without Hyksnos' radiant light, something Southerners like this captain, despite his service to Hyksnos, would never truly understand. Despite their long and arduous journey to get to the outpost, the captain seemed determined to get his soldiers back on the road to Icemount as soon as possible. Even a promise of Brother Tobias' mold cider couldn't convince the stubborn captain to stay for the communal zenith service. May stood mutely next to the old cleric as the procession of soldiers trundled away carrying the seriously injured in the wagon's now empty beds. Tobias waved, murmuring prayers for safety for the forlorn troops before excusing himself to make preparations for the upcoming service. Mays returned to his homestead, the furthest out from the temple situated at the center of the outpost. He arrived home to find Ophelia's cheeks reddening as she tried to convince Emmett, Mays' father, not to go after his longtime companion, Zivian. The old man clutched a walking staff, face blanched with the effort of both trying to break free from Ophelia and trying to hobble after the dog on his lame leg. Emmett, once a powerful man, now withered with age and injury, cursed his maze led him back into the house with a promise that he would get the Batoon-cursed dog and return in time to escort his father to the Zenith service. 
Batoon, take that stupid dog. Maze grumbled as he forced his way through a knee-high snowdrift. Fortunately, the animal's bounding path was easy to follow. As Maze trudged through the early autumn snow, he thought he knew where the dog was ultimately headed. Zivian, named after the legendary fire-breathing steed of the High Beacon, must have caught the scent of the soldiers unloading the outpost's seasonal supply drop. Mays followed the meandering path that eventually led him back to the gunman's barn. Sure enough, Mays found the dog snuffling in the muddy ruts left by the supply wagons, searching for the source of the unfamiliar scents. Zivian followed his nose up to the wide doors of the gunman's barn, where Mays could hear the bison lowing anxiously. The dog's hackles stood on end as he let out booming barks snarling at the barn doors. Maze grabbed the dog roughly by the thick leather collar and hauled him bodily away from the barn. Ingo Gudman would be furious if the dog spooked his bison into a stampede. The dog became increasingly frantic as Maze pulled him further from the barn. He had little energy to spare for returning the waves and salutations of the other outposters on their way to the Zenith service as he nearly dragged the beast back to the homestead. Getting the dog in his pen was a struggle that left Maze with no less than three long gashes from Zivian's claws. As Maze stomped back to the house, he struggled to catch his breath. The dog's bark changed from a thunderous warning to a frenzied yelping, the volume increasing as Maze strode further away. In the struggle to wrangle the animal, Maze hadn't noticed that his amulet had worked its way out of his tunic. It caught the light as it moved up and down in rhythm with his heaving chest. He stared down at the intricate metalwork, admiring its beauty. Maze hadn't seen anything else so fine in all his seasons. A ruby, surrounded by a corona of intricate golden flames, reflected the noonday sun. He hardly thought he was worthy of wearing such a relic. It was Brother Tobias, earned during his service in the Beacon's army. The cleric had insisted that Maze wear it, as he had been charged with the outpost defense. Tobias said that it would protect him against darkness, and indeed it had. Dangerous beasts roamed the wilderness this far north. Not five years back, a cloud stalker had maimed his father's leg as they chased it away from the gunman's herd. Dire wolves and worse stalked the woods, and often needed reminding of where their territory ended and the outpost began. After catching his breath, Mays ducked into his homestead and collected his father from his seat by the fire. The old man grumbled about the pain in his leg, but Maze got Emmett's arm around his shoulder and helped the old soldier take most of his weight off his bad leg. The two made their slow and ungainly progression toward the temple where they could hear the hymns had already started. Attempting, and failing, to enter unobtrusively, Maze eased Emmett onto a pew in the back of the small well-lit temple. He tousled his boy's hair, making them shriek with laughter as he took his place next to his wife. He looked over and smiled at Ophelia's disapproving stare. He had always loved the way she scrunched up her forehead when she was trying to be stern. He supposed he had always loved Ophelia. At least he had since they were kids, chasing ducks around the Ballison's back pond. Though it took him more than a few years to figure out why he always wanted to be where she was. Mays raised his voice, joining in song with the rest of the congregation as they started a familiar refrain. He could hear Aletta Costobo singing slightly out of tune. Gru Jr., the youngest Ballison, amused his siblings by swapping out the regular lyrics with the less-than-pious rendition of the hymn. Brother Tobiah maintained his composure, as he always did, adding a sense of sanctity to the ceremony. That was when everything changed. 
when it happened. Mays was blasted off his feet. The impact with the floor knocked the wind from him. He rolled onto his back as a wave of crackling purple energy pulsed through the room. Ophelia, Mays' eyes searched for his wife. He watched as her skin grayed, blackened, then sloughed away in flakes of ash. Her body crumpled as she tried to shield their two sons. The boys, too, collapsed into ashen heaps as Mays desperately tried to regain his breath. All around the temple, everyone Mays knew, his entire community became soot and blackened bone. All save him. His skin had tinged gray, his vision swam. His hands trembled uncontrollably as he swept them through the delicate bones that were once his sons and all went black. He awoke in twilight, eyes bleary. It took him a moment to recognize his surroundings as he stirred from the rough-tempered floor of the temple. Ash swirled in small dervishes as a chill breeze swept in through the open door. Kneeling, Mays cradled bones that crumbled to soot in his fragile grasp. Racked with sobs, his enormous body shook as he lay prone, gently gathering the remains of his family. He lay there until the sky lightened from dusky purple to palest pink. Sixnos's golden light began to crest over the horizon. He moved to the altar at the front of the temple. There he knelt, arms outstretched in supplication. He prayed, pleading for guidance, for an answer. The silence pressed in on him as he knelt there. It gathered, looming like a multitude of witnesses to his solitary vigil. His knees began to ache, then burn, and eventually grew numb as hours passed, the sun making its inexorable journey across the sky. As it reached its zenith, he stared up through the circular opening built into the roof, crafted specifically to allow the noon sun to shine down into the temple. He fixed his eyes, unblinking on the brilliant orb, not daring to take his gaze away, even as they began to burn and water at the intensity of the light. It filled his vision, obscuring all else when he heard her voice. She came to him like a gentle breeze. His aches vanished as warmth washed over him. Her tone, sweeter than southern honey and warmer than a summer day, enveloped him. She said, Go to the place where the sun always rises. Then go to the place where the sun never sets. Almost as soon as it began, the moment passed. His aches returned with the crushing reality of what lay scattered around him. Stunned by his brush with divinity, Maze blinked as his vision returned. He pondered what could have only been Hyksnos's words as he deliriously got to his feet. His exhausted mind found some solace in her guidance as he turned to survey the carnage. He stepped carefully around the remains of his family, friends, and neighbors, exiting the temple for the first time since the previous day. The sight shocked him. All the buildings remained standing, but a wide swath of land all around the outpost had been desiccated. Trees whose fall foliage dazzled in shades of orange and maroon only yesterday now stood blackened husks 
devoid of leaves. Silence from the gunman's barn told him what he would find if he were to open the doors. Go to the place where the sun always rises. He knew from the illuminated tomes that there was a place far to the southeast where devout worshipers could gather and witness Hyksnos's golden light rise out of Adfion's eastern sea. Perhaps there he could puzzle out the Radiant One's enigmatic words. There was nothing left for him here. He would gather what supplies he could and begin his journey south. Perhaps there he could find the reason Hyksnos allowed this to happen. Prologue, Patterit. The polished tile rang like cymbals at the Songwind Festival as he sprinted towards the bridge. Each hoofed step seemed to echo louder than the last. Patterit didn't care about the noise, though. The time for stealth was long past. He could see brilliant illumination reflecting off the mirror-bright flooring as he made his clangorous approach. Magic was clearly at work, and he knew that his fellow guards were not the source of the arcane light. Patterit heard the unmistakable sounds of combat as he hurtled his enormous frame around the last corner. He instinctively raised his arm to shield his eyes from the blinding glare. The distance was possibly the only thing that saved his eyesight. A brilliant white light emanated from the center of the bridge, engulfing the fight that Patterit could hear but not see. Even as he thought through possible tactics to combat this power, Patterit couldn't help but admire the Inquisitor for keeping this ability secret. Patterit studied anyone in close proximity to Zilladim, collecting information on their abilities, history, and cataloging any magic artifacts rumored to be in their possession, along with stories of their use. The problem with collecting stories about Lenriesh's sword was that nearly all of the folk who had seen him use it were dead. The rest were too scared to speak. The light began to flash and pulsate, extinguishing for the briefest moments. It took Patterit a moment too long to understand what he saw through slitted eyelids. He caught flashes of his companions dying as Lenriesh's blade plunged in and out of them. Inzine's body seemed to glow internally for an instant as the blade stabbed through his armor and into his gut. To Inzine's credit, he held on to the hilt of the Inquisitor's blade for a few heartbeats, giving Patterit his longest uninterrupted view of the battle. The slaughter. As Inzine's body tumbled back over the railing and into the churning water of the pond, Patterit made sense of his brief glimpse of the scene. Rill, Yix, and of course Killick were still up and fighting. Everyone else was down. Inzine for certain was dead. If the sword thrust hadn't killed him, the creatures in the pond would. Patterit murmured a quick prayer to Basaldir for his fallen friend. His subordinates were dying because of an intelligence-gathering failure on his part. It was time to end this. The Minotaur pulled a tapestry from the wall as he continued his headlong charge toward the bridge. He barely cringed as he ripped a long, ragged strip from what was probably a priceless work of art. Barely. He tied the strip of tapestry around his eyes, in a poor mimicry of the Inquisitor's ceremonial scarf. His horns would have gotten in the way if he didn't keep them shaved down to stubs as a mark of his shame. Humility was a virtue that was forced upon him, Discipline, focus, and excellence were virtues he chose. Patterit had never fought in blinding light before, 
though, if he survived this contest, he would certainly add this challenge to his training regimen. But he had fought in the dark, and he had fought blindfolded before. While fighting without sight was certainly a disadvantage, it was a familiar disadvantage. He would adopt the stance of the willow and open with a series of defensive sweeps. He allowed his memory of the scene and his intimate knowledge of his own stride length to carry him onto the bridge. Light engulfed him, nearly shining through the thick fabric of the tapestry as he unstrapped Sonata's halberd from his back. Hearing his thunderous approach, his fellow guards had stepped back, disengaging with the Inquisitor and allowing for a brief lull in the fight. Patterit shouldered past Killick, murmuring, Get back. Hold the exits. We cannot allow him to leave. I will finish this. This entire palace and all its inhabitants are now suspected of treason to the Empire. Lay down your weapons, surrender, and I will allow you to live. Patterit was happy to let the Inquisitor talk. It gave his companions a chance to retreat further and drag away the bodies that would be a hindrance on this narrow bridge. As the human spoke, Patterit edged closer, gauging the Inquisitor's distance from where his voice sounded. It seems we are both bound by oaths to masters greater than ourselves. We are diametrically opposed, and it appears that one must destroy the other. I find this a shame. You are a fine warrior and loyal to your cause. Both are things I respect. But my will in this is not my own, so I feel honor-bound to inform you that even if you were to lay down your weapon, I would still attack you. Your honor counts for nothing then, Minotaur, if the one you serve has none. All of you can lay down your weapons, and I will spare your lives. Some of your companions have already paid with this. Listen to reason, for there is no path to victory for you in a fight where you cannot see. My honor is my own, not for the likes of you to judge. At some point, we all do things blindly. I, at least, have chosen to follow my own intuition. With that, he struck out with blurring speed, swinging the halberd in wide arcs to force the Inquisitor back. Patterit developed this particular combination of moves to use when surrounded and temporarily blinded. He modified his attack pattern slightly to adjust for the single combatant in a known direction. Rather than retreat from the furious onslaught, Lenriesh parried the first two sweeps of Patterit's halberd. The Inquisitor didn't block, but rather knocked the massive weapon just off course enough to cause the Minotaur to stumble. The heavy halberd crashed into a bridge support as Patterit briefly lost control. Years of training saved his life as he instinctively snapped the haft of the halberd close to his body, blocking the Inquisitor's lunge at his previously unprotected gut. The thrust, intended to impale his innards, instead sliced through fur, skin, and muscle as it was deflected to the side. Warm blood began to spill from the slash, staining his shaggy coat crimson. Battering away a second slash, Patterit struck out in a series of quick jabs, each strike more controlled and precise than the last. He didn't expect any of the blows to connect, but he used them to create space, corralling Lenriesh against the wooden railing of the bridge. Prologue Lenriesh the world was ablaze to Lenriesh, who had his eyes thrown wide to let in the light of Hyksnos. Each creature shone with a unique spectrum to his arcane gaze, some bright and others dim. Patterit shone brilliantly in shades of green and white. 
If he studied the aura long enough, Len Riesch could discern things about a person. At the moment, though, he didn't have time to stop and ponder. He ducked and dodged, hearing the air whisper exactly where the halberd would be a moment before it arrived. Things like weapons didn't appear to his sight unless they were imbued with magic, so he relied on his heightened senses to always be one step ahead of the Minotaur's attacks. Retreating from the onslaught, he took measured steps, feeling the wooden planks of the bridge flex slightly underfoot as he approached the support struts and railing. The Minotaur's reach was the Inquisitor's first problem. In order to strike, Lenriesh would have to get inside Paderit's guard and land a killing blow before the other warrior could retaliate. Lenriesh's second problem was space. The narrow confines of the bridge worked in the Minotaur's favor, and his jabbing attacks, while easy enough to dodge, forced Lenriesh back and to the side. He needed to create more space for Paderit to defend, so up was the only option. Launching himself over the curved blades affixed to the end, he stepped delicately on the haft. Propelling himself sideways off the haft and onto the railing, he caused the Minotaur to stumble once more. Balanced on the ornamental wood, he could feel carved, spiraling ridges through the thin leather of his boots. He might have admired the intricate carvings at another time. Now, they just made his footing precarious as he closed the distance. Despite careful steps, the thin railing creaked under his weight, betraying his location. He only had a moment to react, feeling the air stir behind him. He leapt, backflipping over the humming haft of Paderet's halberd. He felt the air of its passing ruffle his hair as the weapon passed just under his head. The hasty jump and landing left him unprepared to deliver the killing strike that he was poised to drive home only moments before. Rather than risking a rushed attack, Lenriesh dashed past Paderet before the Minotaur could bring his cumbersome weapon back around. Still balancing on the railing, Lenriesh easily avoided a wild but powerful kick from one of Paderet's hooves that splintered the wood he had just been balanced on. This fight was taking far too long. Caution was for those who lacked certainty in their faith in Hyksnos. Landing behind the Minotaur, Lenriesh rolled, avoiding another kick that would have taken him in the head, no doubt splintering it just like the wooden railing. Coming out of his roll and transferring that momentum into his sword thrust, Lenriesh aimed the tip of his blade at the sound of Paderet's thundering heart. It was an instant before he impaled the enormous Minotaur that his senses flared with alarm. A sudden stirring of the air from behind, the rancid scent of thorn, and a hissing blade were all the warning Lenriesh got before the lizard folk Killick was on him. The Inquisitor managed to turn his thrust at the last moment, desperately deflecting the blow aimed at his back. Killick screamed in blind rage, unleashing a frenzied combination. Killick, no! We have to take him alive! Paderet boomed. Still with his back facing the attacking Killick, Lenriesh parried the blind attacks, all while ducking under a predictable sweeping attack from Paderet's halberd. The moment he realized he was beaten was a fraction after the moment he realized that the halberd was no longer in Paderet's hands, but sailing out over the water of the pond. It was a feint. He had let go of the halberd mid-swing. With a speed that belied his enormous size, the Minotaur swept out powerful hands that blindly grabbed fistfuls of Lenriesh's robes. Blade still behind his back parrying furious swipes from Killick, Lenriesh was unable to retaliate as he was lifted off his feet. 
The unique sight granted to him by Hyksnos showed the featureless but undeniably massive head of the Minotaur careening down just before the stumps of his horns made contact with Lenriesh's forehead. Pain flashed for an instant before all went black. Prologue Dimitri Dimitri rocked up and down on the balls of his feet. He stood at the edge of Patterit's enormous bathtub. He stared down into the silvery surface, maintaining concentration on the spell that kept the portal to the wild open. He could feel his strength slowly ebbing as he strained to maintain the connection between the two planes. The longer he held it open, the more difficult it became. He wondered why that was, then chided himself for nearly letting the connection drop. A memory seemed to float just beyond his total recollection, like a fish barely glimpsed through murky water. For a moment, he walked through the cold wood with a turtle. She lectured him on harnessing ambient magic. The turtle's name was on the tip of his tongue before the memory submerged out of reach once more. It had been happening more and more often since the dream with the vessel. Some barrier within his mind seemed to weaken. He could almost sense the knowledge and memories lurking on the other side, familiar and alien at the same time. Come on, he murmured both to himself and the absent overly muscled minotaur. He continued to rock up and down on the balls of his feet. The simple motion helped distract him from the mental strain of holding open the portal as the power within him dwindled. He had never held a portal open for so long. Just as he was about to release the spell and jump in the portal to follow his friends, the memory surged from the depths of his mind, and once more he was transported back. The turtle spoke. The wild is a vast repository of potential. For those brave enough and powerful enough to control it, it is a near limitless font of magical energy. Open yourself to it, Dimitri. Become a conduit and use your will to shape the power. And so he did. As familiar and casual as picking up a favorite walking stick, he reached out and grasped the waiting ambient magic. It filled the pool before him, thrumming with potential as it nearly called out to be used. Just as the last dregs of his power evaporated, he drew deeply from the power gathered in the pool. It flooded through him, filling his veins with molten liquid. Every hair on his body seemed to crackle with energy. He trembled, struggling to remain standing as he tried to contain the overwhelming rush of magic that flowed through him. Under the onslaught of magical energy, the barrier within Dimitri's mind finally broke. A dam that had held a reservoir of knowledge and memory shattered. He tapped into those memories instinctively. With their knowledge, he intuitively attenuated the flow of magic enabling his mind and body to process the new flood of thoughts, sensations, and emotions. He remembered Ethom, Wenki, Willem, and Alda. He remembered shaping the landscapes of the wild. He remembered dreaming. He remembered all of it. Above all else, he remembered Sovacine. Oh, gods. He remembered his beloved Sovacine. As his mind expanded and memories flooded in, he held the portal open almost subconsciously. It hardly took a trickle of the power he commanded. It could have been moments or epochs later, but the Minotaur finally limped into the enormous bathing chamber, 
completely unaware of the transformation that had taken place within Dimitri's mind. A long, thin gash ran across the Minotaur's abdomen. Blood matted the shaggy fur running down his leg, leaving a crimson crescent as a marker of every hoofed step. Over his shoulder, the Minotaur had a sack of rough fabric cinched tight around a pair of red boots. And I just tossed him in? The Minotaur asked. Dimitri nodded, not able to summon the mental capacity for conversation as he still processed centuries worth of memories. Patterit hefted the limp form of the Inquisitor from his shoulder, plunging him into the silvery surface of the pool. Let's bovish for stay grounded in Besaldir. Take good care of my Sonata in there. Now, off you go. Dimitri fell more than he jumped into the pool as the Minotaur patted him good-naturedly on the shoulder. As his body hit the surface of the pool, he was filled with an awareness of the wild like never experienced before. He could sense the chaos and turmoil fomented by Sovacine. He could feel her influence and immense power. He could feel the vessel hidden away in his silver city. He could feel Etham, Wenki, Willem, and Alda, each of them fragments of what they once were, each of them what she had made them. Dimitri's head broke the surface of the pond, and he saw his companions had arrived safely. He took a gasp of grateful air, tasting the familiar loam. He sensed Sovacine's presence the moment she noticed his. Still struggling to make sense of his old memories and abilities, he lost their brief struggle for control. She pulled him beneath the surface, away from his friends, away from his only hope of saving the wild. He re-emerged into another pond. The rough hands of two twisted, hulking figures seized him and dragged him into the courtyard of an onyx fortress. Hello, Dimitri, Sovacine's voice crooned. It's been a long time. I'm glad you finally come home. Prologue Faxon. Tepid rain lashed Faxon's exposed blue skin as he clung to the bare cliff face. Phosphorescent lichen provided decent handholds on the otherwise smooth surface, worn by a millennia of relentless storms and enormous crashing waves. The irony of a triton feeling so out of place among so much water was not lost on him as he made the familiar ascent. How could he feel anything but out of place? when this entire place was hostile towards him. Each breath he took on this God's forsaken world was agony for Faxon. He could feel his lungs and gills burning from the toxic air with each inhale and healing with each exhale. As long as Ara still lived, so would he. His life was bound to hers in a way she had probably never intended. He was determined to get back to her somehow so he could finally end it. For good. Until then, he labored every waking moment to find a way back to her side. He had no other choice. Like a well-trained hound, he was compelled to return. He used to wonder why, after all these centuries, she never sent someone to either collect him or kill him. He now knew, thanks to Abu Ba's explanation, 
that this whole world had been shrouded to make it so impenetrable to scrying magic that even the gods couldn't see what happened here. Avuba stuck their ridged head and long slender neck out of the cave opening. A pass for a mouth on the strange being didn't move, but that had long since stopped unnerving Faxon as the creature's voice sounded directly in his head. The tsunami swiftly approaches. Your sedate pace causes me reason for concern. By my estimation, based on your current rate of travel, that the wave will arrive approximately 3.7 aeels before you reach the safety of the cave and the protective barrier I have conjured at the front. Besides, to lose the stone after your day's long quest to find it would be a tragedy. You know... I've never really understood that measure of time, Avu. And your analysis, while succinct, is not appreciated. He shouted over rolling peals of thunder. Still, Avu's words did have merit, and his calculations were rarely wrong. Time to pick up the pace, he thought, urging his arms and legs to heave him up faster. Lowering his whip-like tail, Avu Ba helped Faxon up the last few feet. You see, Faxon, I knew you could make it back to the safety of our shelter with time to spare. Though I believe if you were putting in a more concerted effort from the start, you could have completed the climb approximately 174.8 aeels before the next tsunami strikes. Hmm... I will be interested to see if my initial calculation is correct. You see... I've been tracking the wave patterns for nearly a century and... The strange creature continued to babble directly into Faxon's mind. It had taken him years to be able to compartmentalize and somewhat ignore Abu Ba's almost incessant chatter. He was more than willing to put up with it in exchange for the creature's brilliant insights and arcane acumen. Avu had an intimate understanding of the ancient technology that was Faxon's only hope of returning home. He was able to accomplish more in a decade with Avu's guidance than he had in centuries of fumbling on his own. Faxon didn't bother to watch the tsunami strike the cliff face. He felt it as a slight shudder in the ground as it broke around the crumbling mountain that served as Avu Ba's home. No. Faxon was far too concerned with the stone he had extracted from his satchel. About the size of his outstretched palm, it crackled with a dark purple energy. He held it reverently, slotting it into a receptacle that retracted to clutch the glowing gem. As Faxon stepped back from the enormous machine, the runes on the pillar nearest him began glowing ever so faintly. After centuries of work, his path home was beginning to look clearer than ever. One thing was certain. He needed more of these stones. That's where we'll end the adventure for now. May's Tumach was played by Luke Hatmaker. The voice of Hyksnos was played by Claire Clausen. The blind inquisitor Lenriesh and Patteret were played by Daniel Storm. Faxon was played by KP, and Avu Ba was played by Zachary Burrell. If you'd like to hear more from our talented performers, check out the episode notes for links to their socials as well as ours. We hope you enjoyed the show. 
If you did, please consider leaving us a review on whatever podcasting app you use. Reviews are incredibly helpful for independent productions like ours. We make this show on a shoestring budget. If you'd like to help financially support the show, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash RPG radio show. Every dollar goes to improving our production. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet you back in Sildoom soon.